very deep within the American psyche is this idea that, okay, we're here now, but we can improve. We can always do better. Maybe it's people everywhere, but but I think it's especially written into our story in America is that we want things to be better. You know, we want the next generation to have more than we did, let's say, or to be more prosperous than us. I think right now we're in a moment where we're trying to figure out what that prosperity looks like. Does it look like burn it up, use it up, throw it away? Or does that actually look not very prosperous? That looks pretty trashy. I think we're we're changing gears there a little bit and coming to realize that really maybe in some cases more stuff isn't necessarily better. Nice stuff that serves your purposes that could be better. And I think that's the gear change we're in right now. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Bob Inglis is a former congressman from South Carolina, as he puts it, the reddest district in the reddest state. The short story is that he stated he believed in the science behind climate change. That was 10 years ago. They voted him out. You'll hear in this episode the story of how he transformed, well, before that, to take such a risk, before that he opposed even thinking about it, then how he responded. That was 10 years ago. And so what's happening between, so what's come since? A link to his two TEDx talks, a frontline interview, and his new organization, which is called Republic EN, which is to bring climate change or the science behind climate change and what to do on it to the right, to the conservatives. And I recommend looking at all of these, no matter what your political views. I consider acting on your values leadership. Most of us want to act on our values, but we hold ourselves back. He did something really big. It made a really big effect on him. And I believe he's making a big effect back. I bet that you'll find him a role model for actions you've held back on, whether related to nature or elsewhere in life. We talk about meaning, purpose, and faith. Here's Bob. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Bob Inglis. Bob, how are you? Good. Good to be with you, Joshua. Glad to have you here. I've been listening to you. You've had two TEDx talks, this great frontline interview. There's a lot of stuff, and I'm going to link to all of it. So you're a former South Carolina congressman, and almost 10 years ago, had a split with the party, but not with the philosophy. And... I have to say, listening to you makes a lot of sense. And it's a voice that I I can't believe is not, I love it. I'm I'm really glad to hear what you've been saying about climate change. And I want to hear about what you're doing now, building up to uh, Republic EN, the organization you're you're working with. But I want to build up, and I apologize that I'm sure you've told the story many, many times. (laughs) Do you mind sharing a bit of what happened 10 years ago? Yeah, so for the first... uh six years that I was in Congress, you know, I said that climate change was nonsense. I didn't know anything about it, except that Al Gore was for it. And in as much as I represented a very red district in South Carolina in the U.S. Congress, that was the end of the inquiry for me. So I admit that's pretty ignorant, but that's the way it was for six years. Then I was out of Congress for six years doing commercial real estate law in Greenville, South Carolina. Had the opportunity to run again in 2004. And uh, the eldest of our five kids, our son, came to me that year and he said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. (laughs) Uh, His four sisters agreed, his mother agreed, new constituency, you know. And my son, you know, really was going to vote for me no matter what, right? It wasn't his economic interest to vote against me because you can lose my one vote. And he knew that we were mortgaging the farm at that we live on in order to run for Congress. So he's going to vote for me no matter what. What he's really saying was, Dad, I love you and you can be better than you were before. So how about make this English 2.0, the new and improved version? So that was step one of a three-step metamorphosis. Step two was going to Antarctica with the science committee, seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. And step three was another science committee trip, but they stop over at the Great Barrier Reef, and uh, something of a spiritual awakening with an Aussie climate scientist showing us uh, a Great Barrier Reef, corals, and the risk of coral bleaching, and being inspired by his faith, uh, which I could see and hear before any words were spoken. 
You know, St. Francis of, of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And so Scott Heron, who's now become a very dear friend, uh, was preaching the gospel. I could tell that he had now shared a worldview uh, without any words. But later, when we had a chance to talk, uh, he told me about conservation changes he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. Scott does some things that my conservative friends might find a little bit strange. You know, he rides his bike to work. He does without air conditioning as much as possible in Townsville, Australia, a pretty hot place. He hangs the family's clothes out on the line, all to consciously love people coming after us. And so I got right inspired. I wanted to be like Scott, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced in the U.S. Congress a uh, a bill called the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. That's a, uh, a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax. Uh, note to self, do not introduce carbon tax in midst of great recession when you represent perhaps the reddest district in the reddest state of the nation, it will not go well for you. And it, it didn't go well at all. After, after 12 years in Congress, I got 29% of the vote in a Republican runoff, and the other guy got the other 71% of the vote. So, And I remember, but, and what had you been elected by before that? I think it was totally the other way. Oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty lopsided margins. So it's very unusual to lose a seat in Congress uh, after 12 years and get only 29% of the vote in the runoff. So uh, it was a pretty tough, uh, tough defeat, of course. Um, and at that point, you know, a foundation came to me and said, you know, Inglis, you're, you're a very unusual zoo animal, an actual conservative, you know, 93 American conservative union rating, 100% Christian coalition, 100% national right to life, A with the NRA, zero with the Americans for Democratic Action, that's a liberal group, and 23 by some mistake with the AFL-CIO, the labor union, I was really gunning for a zero. And uh, so they said, an actual conservative who says climate change is real, will you speak and write for the proposition? That's what I've been doing ever since. And now we're a community of uh, 10,000 folks uh, facilitated by a team of us that's uh, five folks, six folks. And uh, we, we, we seek to help conservatives see the power of their own ideas, that free enterprise can solve this if you just fix the economics. Now, you said note to self, don't do those things, but your story's not done yet. So it may, we don't know the ending. Oh, that result of losing the primary, of course, was leaving Congress in 2000, end of 2010, right at the beginning of 11. And so ever since, that's what I've been doing, is working on this, um, various iterations, but it's now called RepublicEN.org. And that's the, uh, this, this community of conservatives who believe that it is a conservative thing to do, to act on climate change, and that it's completely consistent with conservative principles. Well, I, I mean, we haven't finished the story because you're still alive and the, we have yet to see how uh, it plays out. It may have been the best thing you've ever done and could have been the best way to do it. Oh, yes. Yeah, perhaps. Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen this path, but it's been a wonderful path, you know, to, um, to be about something that's big enough to be about. That's really the most you can hope for out of a career is uh, something big enough to be about. And surely acting on climate change would be something big enough to be about. That was my next question. If you don't mind going into a little more depth, how did it feel at the time? From a leadership perspective, I think the personal emotional experience is significant. And a lot of people are fearful. A lot of people are ambitious and lots of different things. How did it feel at the time? How does it feel now? To uh, lose that seat in Congress? Well, I mean, that's one way of framing it. I mean, to stick with your, your principles, I mean, you must have known that they weren't going to just be like, oh, great, now I'll just switch. I mean, maybe some did. Well, you know, I, I really had hoped that people would, would say, uh, you know, gee, um, he's really um, helping us to understand things. And, you know, he's, uh, we, we sent him off to Antarctica, he learned something, you know, sent him to Great Barrier Reef, he learned something. And, uh but that, that wasn't the reaction. At the time, you know, uh, we were in the Great Recession and orthodoxies become important when the tribe is under pressure. And so the tribe was under a lot of pressure. So there was a pretty strong orthodoxy that we don't believe in climate change and you shouldn't either. 
uh, is basically what that, what was going on in 2010. The good news is, is that's really changed now. And uh, we're finding uh, it's pretty exciting to see uh, conservatives uh, coming around on climate because after all, you know, experience is a pretty effective teacher. It's often a harsh teacher, but we're all being taught about climate change because we're all having experiences with climate change. And so it's changed now. I'm reading in you now, what would I say? It's drive, determination, purpose, and meaning, and that you might not have had had you not acted then. I think a lot of people are feel a certain way. They're nervous about expressing it, especially in America, and they're even more nervous about acting on it. You've acted, and it looks to me like the worst that could have happened happened, and you're, if dare I say, all the better for it. It sounds like you, you probably had some really difficult times in there, but you've come out, it seems, the better for it. Yeah, because I think that what it is, is it's all about how you score the game of life, you know, and uh, uh, some people score it needing a perfect uh, handicap in golf. Others need uh, money. Others, I don't know, beauty or something. I score it by meaning, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. what is meaning and purpose? And so for me, it's it's been a wonderful path, even though it, it uh, wasn't the path I would have chosen. Now that's also reflecting the optimism that I think that we are going to win on this. We are going to act on climate, I believe, and the the answer is going to become obvious, and that's to simply internalize the negative externalities associated with burning of fossil fuels, fix the economics, and then watch the free enterprise system deliver uh, solutions. And so I'm pretty confident we're going to win. The only question is whether we win soon enough to avoid the worst of the consequences. Mm-hmm. If it's okay with you, I want to share with you some of my background and why a lot of what you say resonates. I mean, by contrast, I grew up, I certainly held my share of picket signs and protested things in college. And then fast forward to a few years ago, the environment and acting, taking a leadership role in the environment became very important to me. Last fall, there were the climate marches in New York City. I knew I was going to go to them, and I knew some people who were organizing. As it happened that day, I had a meeting at NYU at Stern, the business school. And so I had to run down early, go to the march, then run back up to the meeting, then run back down again, go to another business meeting. So I had on a blazer, college shirt, and I looked like a businessman. I can't put my finger on it, but I, when I got there, I distinctly didn't feel welcome. Now, you might know about my background. I haven't flown in five years. I take two years to fill a load of garbage, all sorts of very environmental things, which a lot of people associate with personal action, which I think is very important. If you're a leader and you don't live by the values that you espouse, people are going to not find you particularly credible. But really, it's about developing the skills so that I can lead effectively. Now, I would suspect that I probably polluted less than most people there, maybe almost anyone there. There's a big space of like tens, tens of thousands of people. I think I should have been, if I were there not dressed as I was, and I saw someone dressed as I was, I would say that's the person I want to make feel the most welcome because he would have taken some effort to come here and he didn't seem like he belonged. And I felt like there was a, that the left has found an issue that they think is a winning issue. And I feel like they're just like going to win. We're going to beat them on this one. And it, it got lumped in with all sorts of issues that I didn't think were quite relevant. And I feel they've played a role I think everyone, both sides uh, have played a role in politicizing an issue that I don't think is particularly, doesn't have to be that particularly political. I don't think of traffic laws as political. Like I don't think of someone at a red light saying like some bureaucrat in Washington is stopping me from going through this intersection. We recognize that everyone has to slow down sometimes. I see it something like that. The other big experience that I had was independent of my environmental work. I was brought up to West Point to do some leadership workshops there to teach with this four-star general. And my experience at West Point has been just absolutely transformative. In particular, the service being the big thing. Service and leadership always went together for me, but not until I met the cadets. And that really changed things, as well as stewardship. I'd heard the word before, but didn't really hear it as much as I did until there. And it it was just such an amazing thing that people who are risking their lives, they're thanking me. I'm like, wait a minute, it shouldn't be the other way. But that not from their perspective. And so this working with West Point, and I've had a couple of guests on the podcast who are colonels who are, and also a general from the Marine Corps, 
who really embody this and that change things. I, I would never expected that to come from, I don't think the left really looks to West Point for its leadership. So when I think of a lot of the stuff that you talked about as being very conservative about the economics, to me, it seemed like clear accounting that if I'm, if I'm uh, doing something that pollutes and then someone else has to pay to clean it up, that seems to me a failure of accounting. I don't see how you can run a business or an economy effectively if you're not accounting for the costs effectively. And I guess you could call that a necessary condition for a free market, but it seems to me just accounting, proper accounting. And so everything you said, a lot of what you said really resonated with me is that if you don't account for your costs effectively, then things that shouldn't be profitable become profitable. Things that should are not. And the economy gets all messed up. For example, carbon gets really cheap. Carbon emissions, I should say, it gets really cheap. And then everyone's got to pay for something that some people profited on. And it doesn't seem to be a political issue. I, a big thing for me is to depoliticize this issue. Yeah, well, I think that's it's very true, it really. And, and uh, you've said it in a different way than I've said it, so I, I might borrow that from you. Really, it is an accounting problem, isn't it? Um, it's I usually say it's a problem of economics, but but you're right. More precisely, it's an accounting problem. It's just that those costs. If I'm English Industries, and I'm uh, say burning coal to boil water to to turn a generator to create electrons to send down the line to my customers. If I'm burning that coal and spewing it out into the air, socializing my soot and not being held to account for my CO2 discharges, then I'm I'm clearly getting away with something that I shouldn't get away with. I, I should be prop those costs should be properly accounted to my product. And if they are, then people at the end of the line would see the true cost of my electricity and they'd be looking for alternatives. But as it is, I get away with socializing my soot. I get away with lack of accountability for my CO2. It's a great deal for me as long as you'll let me get away with it. It's sort of like... um, you know, if you and I were competing in, in restaurants and I somehow had an end to the USDA, you know, Department of Agriculture food program, and I'm getting free food out in the back door to my restaurant and you're not, well, my costs are going to be less than yours. I'm going to be able to offer a, a cheaper product if we're competing at the low end of the scale here in restaurants. And it's not right. Why should I get that subsidy. And that's really what it is. What we're talking about here is an implicit subsidy for the lack of accountability. So yes, it's, it's an accounting problem. That's right. It seems to me we have, we have a distorted market. For the beginning of the, of the pandemic, I was up at my mom's house, which is 100 miles northwest of the city. And it's a very Republican area. So every day I pick up at least one piece of trash. So out there, in Manhattan, it's pretty easy. I, I don't usually have to cross yeah. the street and I find it. <laughs> Actually, sadly, up there, just as easy to find the stuff. And uh-huh. not only that, it's by the side of the road, there's all these beer cans and stuff. I'm like, not only is it litter out the window, it's drinking and driving. So one time we were walking along. Uh, my mom, like, she gets her 10,000 steps every day and I go and pick up garbage. So it's like a fun mother-son thing. One time we're walking along and I say, hey, what's on this road? And she goes, you know, I've never taken that road. And we go down the road and we're walking along and we pass by a stream. And this is like, you know, the, the um, Hudson River School, it, it looks like a painting from like one of the peak periods of American painting. To the left, the stream goes into the woods and it just meanders through the woods and it's beautiful. And to the right, there's like a kind of marshy area. So it's totally different on one side to the other. And it's just stunningly beautiful, except that there's a giant bag bursting open with used diapers by the side of the road. And there's like a big bucket in the middle of the stream. And there's all the stuff. And I say, and my mom says, you know, the deal is that either here you have to pay to have your trash picked up or you can take it to the dump and then they weigh your car on the way in and out and you have to pay for what you do. And so sometimes people just throw stuff out the window of their car and that's, that, that way they take care of it for free. And this is not, sadly, this is depoliticized because everyone in the country seems to think somehow this is what's become of our country. And I think that that's someone who was able to pass the, their cost on to everyone instead of just themselves. And so when you say carbon tax, it's slightly different, carbon versus litter. But in both cases, I would, I would think it's a pollution tax because I'm, I'm a carbon-based life form. I like carbon. Yeah. And so when someone calls it a carbon tax, I feel like that's, it's like a pollution tax or an externality tax yeah. is how I always think of it. Yeah, it is a pollution tax. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And 
that I don't like pollution. I do like carbon. Yeah. I like diamonds. <laughs> I don't have yeah. any. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. It's a pollution tax. You know, we, we once had an event at the University of Chicago called What Would Milton Friedman Do About Climate Change? You know, and uh, Milton Friedman, as you know, is one of Ronald Reagan's economics advisors, rather, rather conservative fellow, rather big believer in free enterprise. And uh, so there's a great clip of him on the Phil Donahue show in the 1980s. Uh, Phil, a liberal from Chicago, is asking Dr. Friedman, uh, then I guess at the University of Chicago, and uh, he says, well, what do you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman, if you don't want to regulate it? And Friedman says, you tax it. You tax pollution. And then he goes on to explain basically what you and I were saying earlier, which is you you need to account those costs to the firm that's producing those goods so that it's reflected in the price of those goods. If you do that, people in the liberty of enlightened self-interest will pursue their self-interest and choose the cleaner products. So that's that's really what it is. It's about bringing that kind of accountability that then drives innovation. And that's, you know, at republicen.org, we like to talk a lot about that innovation because that that warms the heart of conservatives. What conservatives think they know about climate change or used to think this is changing, as I said earlier, now things are much better than they were back when I started on this road. But a while back, what conservatives thought they heard about climate was the left wants us to walk and eat bugs. They want us to repent of the capitalistic system. They want to attack the capitalistic system. And that's and, and they speak of corporations as though they're evil. And that's that's not what conservatives think. Conservatives are thinking, gee, corporations are a collection of people that sometimes do bad things, but most of the time do very good things for serving customers who then have better lives because they are served by those companies. And a profit means that you're doing that well. And you have repeat customers. And so we have to change that around so that conservatives can hear it in their own language and say, no, no, this is not about doing with less. This is about cleaner, better, faster, cheaper energy abundantly, just from different sources and made differently. If you do that, it's a very different message. And of course, you know, people like yourself, Joshua, who are, who are sort of on the leading edge of that by making, making these changes that you're making in your life will cause it to come sooner. When we have proper accounting, as we've been talking about, then a lot of people will join you, not just because you and I are doing those things out of altruism, but rather out of our uh, financial interests, <laughs> we start doing it, right? I mean, it's, it's a... It's uh, once you see the true cost of fossil fuel energy and consider all those costs, gee, uh, turn down the thermostat, <laughs> do some things to, to save some money here or go get some solar panels. And let's, let's really find out about those batteries we could have in the garage and how we could run our house on, off that battery and that solar power. Then that's when things get exciting, right? And I have to say, there are a few concepts from business that I think are incredibly valuable here. One of them is you don't run your operations off your assets. You run it off your revenues. And if, if you're spending down, if you're mortgaging your future, that doesn't work. I mean, you, you can't run a business selling off your assets. You've got to make it profitable. And that means you've got to do your revenue, I mean, use your revenues yeah. in, to run your business, not your, your capital. The other thing is that if you run a factory, you can keep making it more and more efficient. But the more efficient you make it, the less resilient it is to problems. So you can make everything perfectly just in time. But when you do that, a small mistake, a small problem here can bring down the whole factory. And in operations, you know, you've got to keep stores, you've got to keep stocks here and there. You don't run at peak efficiency, imagining this can be no problems. There will be problems. Yeah. And that way, if some machine goes down, you can you don't have to shut off the whole factory. You can use up the stores for a little bit and then fix that thing and then get back online. And we keep moving to increased efficiency, but we're losing resilience. And that seems, I mean, that's it's certainly what I learned in operations class. The other thing is the doom and gloom that I hear about, it's like 
want to go to Mars? Oh, no problem. Like, I don't see people terraforming uh, like underwater or Antarctica that much, but Mars seems to be no problem. But every other problem that comes from climate change seems absolutely insolvable. And if people like, we, there's nothing we can do if we were to, like somehow the, the ingenuity of the entrepreneur is somehow disregarded when it comes from a pollution tax. I see the doom and gloom coming from the wrong place it, or coming from, a, I hear doom and gloom because I, I'm an entrepreneur and I, it just seems like all the problems seem like tremendous opportunities. Yes, industries will change. There will be creative destruction, but it will be creative. And this to me comes from business. I don't think this coming from the left, but it seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah. And that's, of course, I think you're exactly right, that, that there will be a lot of creative destructionism here. And that's rough if you're, say, a coal miner, um, because your life is going to change. Uh, you know, I was once speaking in West Virginia and uh, I had sort of a rough reception by a guy who was, had his arms over his chest. He says to me in the first question, the Q&A time, he says, you realize, son, that this is coal country, don't you? And in as much as I was, I was in uh, the, the heart of Kentucky coal country, yes, I did understand that. But I answered the question by saying, yeah, it's going to be hard, but it's, it's, it's going to be inevitable too. I mean, it's sort of like what we, I, I suggested to the, that audience, it learned from what we learned in South Carolina when it came to the textile industry. You know, Greenville, South Carolina was once called the textile capital of the world. A lot of our income here was based in textiles. And so, you know, we started having pressure from foreign competitors and then the multi-fiber agreement expired. And then now we've got clothes coming in, gangbusters from cheap places. And the American consumer decided to put the U.S. textile industry under the bus because um, they sort of like those cheap clothes. And so the result of all that was that uh, the textile industry went kaput pretty much in South Carolina. But thank goodness, a thing called BMW came to town. And a BMW which means Bubba makes wheels. That's why they came here. Uh, BMW came to Spartanburg, South Carolina and essentially replaced the textile industry. And that's an example of the creative destructionism. The people that used to work in textile mills are now working for BMW and all the suppliers. And it's pretty exciting, really. I mean, they, they, they make a world-class product and uh, it's pretty neat. The, the wealth of our area actually increased not decreased. And so that's what I said in Kentucky, is it uh, this thing that where coal goes out is going to be very difficult. Just find something else. It won't be BMW. It'll be something else. But we do have to be aware that it's going to be hard for that adjustment is really hard. On the other hand, you can't avoid it, can you? I mean, you can't guarantee somebody that they can do what they're doing for the rest of their lives or live where they're living for the rest of their lives. They've got to be willing uh, to, to accommodate changes that come their way. Yeah, how does this sound to your ears? I would also add that, I mean, if it's going to mean mercury in your fish and it's going to mean unhealthy, then the comparison is not to what you'd like it to be if there were no unintended side effects, but what it will be if you include those things. And also, if the textile mill is going to go to a place where it's... Going back to the pollution tax stuff, if it's in part cheaper because it's going to a place with lower regulations, lower safety, then would it not help us to make sure that over there, they make it as safe as we do here? I mean, otherwise they're, getting, they're going to get to sell stuff really cheap. And the, I mean, one alternative is that we could say, we don't care about safety here. Alternatively, we could say, we want to make sure their safety is on par with ours or else we won't let it come here or something like that. I'm not sure how that sounds to you either of those things. Well, I think what it is, it all comes down to what your expectations are and whether people get comfortable and assume that they, it's just got to be this way. You know, if that's the case, like, okay, we're all going to die. So we just sort of deal with that death. I think the best way to deal with it is by faith, but the, uh, the you can also deal with it by denial because denial is a pretty good coping mechanism, I suppose. But if you get to the place about environmental questions where you think, well, it's just got to be this way, uh, the air stinks, and that's just the way it is. We don't have any alternative. And I, I've lived that. My dad, his, uh, uh, his 
died a couple of years ago, was 37 years at Union Camp Corporation in Savannah, Georgia. They made paper bags. And if you ever know back in the old days about uh, paper plants, they really stunk. So my mom was the ultimate company wife. Most of that steam going up out of the stack. If you cook wood chips on your stove, they'd smell the same way. Smells like bread and butter to me. You know, all those things that we just sort of accommodated to our situation, thinking we couldn't change it. Well, I went to law school, started practicing law for two years in Savannah, Georgia. And during that time, Fort Howard Paper Company, a competitor, was building a recycling mill in Effingham County, Georgia. The chairman of that company was in Savannah one day, and I was the uh, low man on the totem pole. I was literally carrying the bags for the senior partner of my law firm. And so we go down to the street, open the doors to the bank building where the law firm was. The wind was coming out of the west from my dad's plant, where my dad was an industrial engineer, stinking out downtown Savannah. And the chairman of Fort Howard said to us, and really to anybody listening, he said, how do they get away with that? No community in which we operate would let us do that to them. So Fort Howard went ahead with building that plant, a billion dollar recycling facility, no appreciable odor. Several years later, my dad's company, Union Camp, built a plant in, F, in, in, uh, in South Carolina and no appreciable odor. The reality was Union Camp could have cleaned up that Savannah bag plant long before they did. But people just said, well, we can't do anything about it. We just got to live with it, live with the stink. No, really, you don't have to. <laughs> it could be better. You don't have to have a stinky paper plant. You can have a paper plant that doesn't stink. So it's, it's all about what we get used to and whether we decide that we just got to cope with it by denial or whether we say, okay, things could be better. Let's make it better. Well, that to me sounds about as American. I mean, I'm sure it's other places you could say too, but it sure sounds American to me. It sounds, we can make it better. We can, we can not stink. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that is something that is, you're right, uh, Joshua, is something very deep within the American psyche is this idea that, okay, we're here now, but we can improve. We could, we could always do better. And that's, um, maybe it's people everywhere, but, but I think it's especially, written into our story in America is that we want things to be better. And, you know, we want the next generation to have more than we did, let's say, or to be more prosperous than us. I think right now we're in a moment where we're trying to figure out what that prosperity looks like. Does it look like burn it up, use it up, throw it away? Or does that actually look not very prosperous? That looks pretty trashy. And so I think we're, we're changing gears there a little bit and coming to realize that really maybe in some cases more stuff isn't necessarily better. Nice stuff that serves your purposes, that could be better. That's the gear change we're in right now. Certainly makes sense to me. Oh yeah, you, you mentioned your son, your family said to you, you got to change uh, back when you said, if Al Gore says it, I'll say the opposite. How did they come about with a different, and, and they grew up in the same reddest district of the reddest state, how did they get their views that were different than yours? Do you remember? Wow, what a great question. Um, I was about to jokingly say their mother, but no, she was, she was with me in the same uh, context or is in the same context. You know, I think that my kids, uh, five of them, um, were affected by the faith that their, uh, their mother and I, my wife and I proclaimed to them and they were particularly good and still are particularly good at challenging us to live that faith. Particularly, that's what was resonating for me when I told the story about the third step in my metamorphosis on climate change, the spiritual awakening at the uh, Great Barrier Reef about loving God and loving people. I think it turns out that our kids uh, were better at doing that than than I've been. <laughs> um, and I think they've... Uh, they sort of say, okay, yes, you taught us this, and now let's see you do it. I think, I think they were influenced by, by, that, by what they heard, but then they added to it, well, now let's go do it. Um, and that's led them into some places that uh, may sound a little bit different than, uh, than your average Republican right now in South Carolina. Do I read right? That, so their faith 
is that when they look around them, they said, the way that this makes sense is they came to a different conclusion than you. They hadn't, you were, I guess, busy with other things and weren't able to see it that way. Well, I, I think what it is, is, is uh, kids are very helpful to parents, um, you know, because they... Um, Sounds like a euphemism if I've ever heard one. <laughs> they, they, they help you to change, really, because otherwise without kids, you don't know what's, what's changing around you. And so kids, I think, are very helpful to, because they're so intimately connected to the parents and they know what the parents believe and what they, uh, how they act. And then they become aware of something that maybe should be changed about that, the actions especially. And then they challenge us to do that. But the neat thing is the challenge is in the context of love. And so there's a relationship there. There's a commitment. There's a bond of love. And that creates the ability for real change. And it makes it so that it's something we want to do because we want to respond to that loving impulse to make us better than we were before or to improve our thinking, improve our actions. And so if uh, and it's different than, than somebody that doesn't really have a relationship with you, if it's somebody that doesn't have a relationship with you and they tell you, oh, yes, yeah, you're all wrong about this. You got to change about that. People aren't likely to listen to that. <laughs> um, but if it's somebody that you care about and who cares about you and they suggest something that you could do better, then you're, you're more inclined to say, you know, you're right. And thank you for telling me. If you really trust that they love you. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, You'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Thank you for sharing. I mean, I'm hearing vulnerability here, and I appreciate that if I read you right. So your family motivated you. When you act on the environment, what do you think about? They're motivating you, but what has the sense of like, what's better, what's worse? What, I mean, maybe it's a great barrier reef. I'm not sure. Do you have images or something that comes to mind of what, what's inside you? Of what, what could be better? Or what's the, well, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just uh, really the, the notion that we should be about is, uh, can you make the place nicer? Can you improve things? Can your time be about making it even better? You know, and that's basically the concept of... Well, so what's better? I mean, a lot of people who grow up near the ocean, they'll say it's something near the ocean. For me, you know, certainly seeing a, a bursting open bag of diapers is the opposite. You know, the stream without that would be something, you know, I think of streams and things like that. Is there anything that comes to mind for you like that? Yeah, well, uh, well uh, uh, something that comes to mind that is that, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the low country of South Carolina. It's quite near sea level. And so uh, the risk of sea level rise is quite real to me. And so, you know, the thought of it uh, sort of claiming some beautiful places uh, is troubling to me. And now I live inland in the upstate of South Carolina. And I think the the thing that I'm aware of is you have to, you need to tend to garden, you know, um, you need to to be there as a a steward of the garden. Otherwise, the thing will really turn into weeds and and go to pot pretty quickly. So it's about tending the garden and uh, that's and and creating some beauty in that space. So that's what uh, motivates me, I suppose. You're filling me with envy. I have on my windowsill. I have a basil plant and I have a, a lettuce. It's kind. Of, it's just some water and then a tomato plant. Basil, I would love to have a garden, a really big one. You, you said earlier about how experience teaches well. And so I'm going to invite you at your option. If you're game, no obligation, but uh, to think of something you could do to act, that feeling that you just described of, of stewardship or of tending a garden, to think of something 
that you could do that you're not already doing to act on that feeling. And a lot of people, when I say this, they think I'm saying, what's the biggest thing that you could do? What's the most important thing you could do? Or what the, you know, what the experts say to do? But it's not about the world. It's about our feelings inside and what, you know, doing something that generally people feel like, oh, that's something I was thinking about doing anyway. The rules are that it can't be something you're already doing. It can't be telling someone else to do it. And it has to have some measurable result. Not that you have to measure it, but, but it can be as small or as big as you like. Yeah. So, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out the window at an enormous garden um, that's a little bit too large. I, if you'd like to come tend it with me, I'd be happy for you to. It's, <laughs> it's, it's too big for us right now. Um, it was just fine when all of our five kids were here. Uh, but now that they're hither and yon, and it's my wife and I, we have way too many tomato plants over there. So we're, we're going to be giving away tomatoes here. Uh, you know, uh, here, please take some tomatoes here. Please take some squash. My goodness, the squash overproduces, you know. But I'm also seeing some sunshine out there. And the thing that I want to do is figure out how to um, capture some of that energy in uh, a solar array of some sort. And what I really want is to store it in the garage in a battery and run our electric car on it. So that's what I really want to do. I need to figure out a way to afford it and to uh, either that or figure out a way to do it myself. I I need to, uh, in which case I need to learn a lot more than I know about hooking up electricity. (laughs) So some of that, the fulfillment of that will be dependent, dependent somewhat on the price of batteries and whether they come down enough to make that worthwhile. Uh, I think it's going to happen. Um, so uh, the only problem with this, this establishing this goal, Joshua, is you might, you might need to check back in uh, more like years rather than months with me <laughs> because it, it, may, it may be a while before the battery gets to the place where I, I, can, I can afford it. But, I, but we've got a, a wonderful place that um, would support a pretty large solar array you know, out in our pasture. And I think that we could, I think we could pretty much uh, power our whole house and probably cars, and that'd be pretty exciting. But that's a big deal. That's a be that's a big investment. We got to figure out why that works financially. Yeah, that being so big, I don't want to stop you from that. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there might be an intermediate goal that could be something smaller or something more achievable. Uh, well, it, it might be the solar array without the without the battery, but. Uh, but then the net metering thing here is a little bit iffy. So yes, I'm, I'm thinking that's that's my big objective. But let me think if I can think of something smaller that um, would uh, would fit the bill. And it often helps to go back to the feelings that you have of stewardship. Or I'm not sure if the Great Barrier Reef or something comes to mind, but or maybe something. If you go back to the garden, because a lot of people think, oh, you know, put a big solar array, and that would be a really cool thing. It's huge. A lot of people tend to be busy. Mm. Yeah, we think about anything smaller. Uh, all of them, a lot of them, are about energy for me. It's like, uh, what what could I do to uh, maybe uh, insulate the house better or better windows? That that's probably something that's going to happen here. I've got a lot of capital needs here, apparently, don't I? I'm talking about uh, buying new windows and. Uh, well, when was the time that you did something and you thought, oh, this doesn't have to be that way? Yeah, well, I'm I'm doing I'm experiencing this a lot right now with travel. Um, a lot I end up traveling more than you do. It sounds like, but I can tell you that uh, coronavirus times have brought a a swift halt to the to, to travel, and that's not all bad for us at Republican.org. For example, I was New York City's um, Metropolitan Republican Club a couple of years ago. Forty people there. This year, I attended by Zoom. 176 participants. I think we did better. Um, we, had, we went from 40 to 176. Very small carbon footprint. I was just using the electricity here at the, at my house uh, to zoom to them. I think travel will be one of the places where I was going to say uh, in traveling. You know, that's what bugs me about one, one of the things that bugs me about traveling is the um, all the waste. Like you go through an airport and you, you got to find some food. And invariably, it's packaged in all kinds of stuff that you immediately throw away. 
you know, I go around with my reusable water bottle, so that helps. But, but still, there's stuff. Oh, I know. One, one simple thing I can do is get one of those uh, camp spoons, you know, or a, a spork or whatever to carry in my book bag so that uh, my wife has one of those and I don't. So usually if I'm buying yogurt, for example, in an airport, you got to get the plastic spoon from them and eat your yogurt. But I could carry around my own spoon. That would be a very doable objective, wouldn't it? Yes. And the viewers cannot see what I see is a big smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be something I could definitely do. Now, I have a feeling, and I can't be sure about this, but if you're willing to keep in touch, we could check on it. I believe that if you got that spoon, most people would say, well, that really doesn't make a difference. But I bet that the solar array and the battery will come faster and there'll be a direct line of causation that afterward you look back and be like, oh, the spoon led to this other thing. Like I didn't realize, I, yeah, I don't want to lead the witness here. Yeah. But I think that when you see... I think that when people do stuff that they realize, oh, I can, yeah, spoon, I can do that. That was no problem. And then you'll do something else. And then next thing you know, you'll just know people who install batteries in garages or something like that. I'm not sure. Oh, I think that's definitely true. It's like for me with the water bottle. You know, once you get used to having your own water bottle, you really don't want anybody else's uh, plastic bottle to be given to you because you got your water bottle. It's the one that you're used to, you know? I'll tell you, I, I learned about water bottles. I used to have a wide mouth one. Now, the issue with that is if, the, if you're in a car and the car takes off, you know, like you're in a cab or something in New York City, there's a problem if you're trying to drink out of that big wide mouth one because suddenly it can look like you've had an accident when in fact it's the water bottle, not that you had an accident. So you get a narrow one and then that doesn't happen. You don't have that disaster. You know, so you, you get used to that and then you don't, you, you really don't want one of those plastic throwaway things. And litter starts looking really different then because you're like, what I'm using is better than what they're using. I mean, better functionally. and they're littering. Yeah. Like they're littering something less functional. Yeah. Yeah. To throw it away, burn it up, use it up. Not at all uh, conservative in my view, you know. Um, and some people might listening to us think, oh, well, a bunch of liberals. I don't think it's liberal here. Um, I think it's actually quite conservative or or just reasonable. I like to tell the story about how my dad taught all of us to drive. I get four siblings. And whenever he was teaching you to drive, he'd say, now let off the gas at the Tarvers. We're going to coast to our driveway. Don't wear out the brake linings and don't burn up the gas. <laughs> you can tell back mm -hmm. then the price of gas was not an issue, but the brake linings were. And uh, so to me, that's quite conservative. And it's quite different when I once heard Rush Limbaugh talking about um, how uh, the liberals in the Yugo to the tune of uh, In the Ghetto, uh, Elvis Presley's song. And I thought, Rush, since when does what you're talking about, burn it up, use it up, become conservative? It's not conservative. Conservative is my dad saying, let off the gas. We're going to coast to our driveway. That's conservative. And it also, I mean, it's not so much politically conservative, it's just conservative as in, be aware of the resources you've been given and don't just burn them up, you know, uh, make good use of things. Be a good steward is basically what it's talking about. And that's, that's true for political liberals and political conservatives. Both should want to be good, good stewards, correct? That's exactly, that's to me, it doesn't feel political. It feels like, it doesn't feel any more political than like yeah. loving your children. It, it, it just feels like, I don't, I don't think any side is going to do well saying this is us. So I look forward to hearing how things go. Is, is it okay with you if we schedule a second conversation to hear how the spoon yeah. challenge goes? <laughs> we'll find out about the spoon, yes. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I'll be curious if it, if it just ends up there, if you forget, if you remember, something like that. I have to say something. There's, this is totally nerdy of me. You know, there's a whole community of people who figure out how to get the best mileage out of their cars by taking what you described to an extreme and coasting as much as they... Yeah, hypermilers. Oh, you know about that. Okay, yeah. so that... Because I think I heard in you something very nerdy like me, and I don't want to get in trouble or anything, but I heard you say on a different podcast, something about an ATM machine, and then you corrected yourself and said ATM and took out the machine. Uh -huh. <laughs> I thought, 
no one else does that. And I thought, did I hear you right? Like, would you, if you said ATM machine, would you then correct yourself and then say ATM? Yeah, yeah. Because it's like a, okay. a salt treaty. Uh, you know, it was a, you know, it was a strategic yeah. arms elimination talk, a treaty. It's what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't the, it, yeah, the T, you didn't need an extra T on the end of that. I thought there's something in common there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to ask, is there anything I didn't think to ask or something, anything you want to say directly to the listeners before I wrap up? Just something to pick up on something that you mentioned. Yeah. When you're talking about showing up at that uh, rally in New York with a blazer and a dress shirt on and being looked at a little bit askance, I think that really is a big part of the challenge for us is that climate change is a very effective political wedge in the hands of the left. And they can use it very effectively to win elections. But the result may be that we never get policy that way. And it may, it's a, in order to achieve the objective, the left really has to put down those wedges. And they really have to say, okay, how could we work together? And it's going to take a lot from the left to do that. I mean, so for right now, for example, right now in the U.S. Senate, Mitt Romney, Mike Braun, Mitt Romney of um, Utah, Mike Braun of Indiana, two Republicans with uh, business backgrounds are really looking at things that you and I have been talking about here. The question is whether the left will let them into the conversation or not. If they do and put down the wedge and say, okay, listen, we won't, we won't use this wedge against you and try to beat you. We're just going to say, let's come together and solve climate change. Then we could get an answer. But if the left insists on holding that wedge and using it to win political races, that's holding us back. That's what, that's what, so, but it takes a lot if, you, if you've got a wedge and it's working for you to give it up. It's, it's, it's sort of like a unilateral disarmament, you know? But really, in order to win this one, we need unilateral disarmament, especially in the left in the use of those political wedges. Boy, I'll end there, but I hope to pick up on that next time because that's what you just said is just fascinating to me and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, good. But for now, Bob Inglis, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Joshua. Thanks for having me. Everyone starts by associating any personal action at all with big things, often so big that they can't act on them and then they think, well, I can't do anything. I associate personal action with learning skills, which means starting where you are, which I think will lead to learning faster, even if you have to start small. I believe that the spoon will bring him to that battery in the garage faster than if he didn't do the spoon in the first place. I secretly hope pollution tax or externality tax as names, I secretly hope that they catch on instead of carbon tax. And most of all, I hope that we can, what he said at the end, to wrestle this wedge from those at the poles of our polarized society, especially our political system, as he described at the end. I can't wait for our next conversation. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.